Should all Christians be pacifists? And can it ever be a Christian's duty to kill? And jumping ahead 100 years to Portland, Oregon, we'll be speaking with a native Portlander, Patrick Tomasi, about his interactions with Antifa and the Proud Boys and a great new article he wrote for Plow. I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. I'm Peter Momsen, editor of the Plow Quarterly, and this is the Plowcast. So Susanna, this is the second of a six-part series that we'll be doing on the violence of love, our new issue of uh, Plow Quarterly, and it's about violence and nonviolence. Last time we talked about the problem of political violence, and we also talked about some early anti-fascists, the White Rose student movement in Germany in 1943. Uh, also in Germany, but not in 1943, was Edward Arnold, the author of our first piece that we're gonna discuss today, Beyond Pacifism, Seven Theses on Christian Nonviolence. And uh, Edward Arnold is the founding editor of Plow and is also the founder of the Bruderhof. He died in 1935. Uh, what was your impression of reading this article, his seven theses, which are, you know, kind of provocative, uh, given that most Christians don't agree that nonviolence is a necessary part of following Jesus? I don't know. I Before we talk about the specific theses, my impression is just he's a voice from a kind of a different world. Um, and I just, I'd be interested to, not not a different world in the sense that he's looking at questions that we're not looking at, but that his surrounding, his, like imagining his surroundings, um, the political and social things that are going on as he's writing these things was such a huge part of me reacting to them that I was wondering whether you could just sort of describe a little bit more um, what the sort of political and social movements of essentially Weimar Germany were um, as he was growing up and as he converted and, and began to um, try to live out his ide ideals. Um, what, what was his story? Absolutely. So Edward Arnold was a Protestant uh, theologian and philosopher. He was very active in Berlin, uh, in the revival movement that was sweeping through the Lutheran churches at that time. Um, actually, during World War I, he was pretty patriotic and pretty supportive of Germany's war effort, although increasingly over the course of the war, he was troubled specifically by the social injustice that became ever more uh, obvious during the course of the war, and then particularly by so he had been drafted, um, but he was let go after a few weeks driving ambulance because of his tuberculosis, which was pretty advanced. So instead, he became a chaplain to soldiers who came back from the front. And what he saw there just appalled him. Uh, after the war, and I'm not quite sure when, it's not entirely clear, he became a convinced pacifist. And these seven theses on Christian nonviolence are all things he wrote between 1920 and 1935, so they span a time when he was first worried about the threat of uh, Bolshevism in Germany, which was real, uh, particularly in the early 1920s. And then, of course, uh, you get into the last three years of his life, uh, 1933 through 1935, where he's living under a Nazi regime and the community, the Bruderhof that he founded, is being raided by, uh, you know, uh, the, the SS and... Uh, Nazi police and getting in all kinds of trouble for uh, their Christian convictions. So these uh, seven theses aren't written from an ivory tower. You're right, uh, Susanna. Uh, they're written out of a context of direct confrontation first with 
um, Bolshevik mar- mar- Marxism and then with literal fascism. Yeah, and actually, as we were as we're sort of looking forward a little bit to the um, Patrick Tomasi piece that we're going to be discussing, another thing to kind of remember about what he was the the world that he was living in is that it was a world where literally communists and fascists were clashing on the streets and where there was a lot of pressure from, you know, whichever side you were kind of tended to be politically affiliated with to support the idea that clashing on the streets was a good, a good thing that you should punch Nazis. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's really, really true. So Edward Arnold is actually on my mother's side, my great grandfather, and my grandfather remembers growing up in Berlin um, in 1919 during the German Revolution and actually walking over the trenches where the sort of socialist and nationalist sympathizers are shooting at each other. And they would have this um, uh, ceasefire during the time that the kids would go to school. And they'd walk over these little planks over the trench to get to school. They would stop shooting and then Uh, They'd shoot during the day while the kids are at school, and then the kids would kind of walk home. So this is what his kids um, were doing when he was thinking through and writing some of this stuff. He he was looking right in the face of a maximized version, a maximalized version of uh, essentially not a failed state, but a political society that was committed to, that was completely drawn up in... um, political violence as a sort of normative thing that's just kept on happening. Yeah, it kind of puts today's Weimar comparisons into a bit of perspective because I'm yeah. not sending my kids across trenches to school, um, and I, hopefully I, I never will. Yeah. Um, so do we want to look at some of these theses, like one at a time, or maybe read them out and then choose a couple to discuss? Yeah, I think uh, we, we should. And the first thesis uh, is the one that is the most controversial and the one that from which all else follows, in the name of Jesus, no one can shed human blood. He writes, in the name of Jesus Christ, we can die but not kill. This is where the gospel leads us. If we really want to follow Christ, we must live as he lived and died. So in the name of Jesus, we can die and not kill. And if that's true, then a whole bunch of other things is true. Um, Second thesis, for instance, thus there can be no Christian state. Because the state, by necessity, according to Romans 13 even, does you know part of its job is to shed blood and therefore if that, if it's true that there that a christian can't shed blood then the state has to be something that is essentially outside of the kingdom of god exactly the state is as, as uh the power that is instituted authorized by god to maintain order by violence is outside the perfection of the kingdom uh, the, the kingdom of perfect love promised by the prophets and which the early Christians look forward to. Um, but then the, the other theses um, go in a bit of a different direction, and maybe we should first start by talking about these two, because they get into the problems with pacifism, um, right. which he also has some pretty significant objections to. So I just described him as a pacifist, but I'm not really sure he actually would have welcomed that label. But, I mean, this is something that, like, we've talked about a bit, but it's actually something that we, I think, disagree on. Although I, you know, my ideas about this are confused. Um, how do you, like, what does it mean that a Christian can't shed blood in the sense of, like, what do you do about ideas of immediate self-defense or defense of others? Like, if, is it, is it really the case that if somebody was, like, attacking, you know, one of your kids, you would feel like you couldn't, you couldn't kill them in order to stop that? So, I think... Um... 
that is obviously the classic objection, right, to yeah. to Christian nonviolence. But the way that Edward Arnold sees this, and for that matter, I see it too, um, is that's actually the wrong way of asking the question in terms of sort of ethical hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. Um, our call as Christians is to be the body of Christ in the world, to live as he lived, die as he died, as he mm-hmm. said. Uh, Jesus never used lethal violence. Um, he told his disciples not to use lethal violence. His whole way of the cross was one of um, accepting suffering, of dying, not of killing. And in his teachings, in his Sermon on the Mount, he just goes into great detail about what that means. We're to be meek, we're, we're to be merciful, we're to be peacemakers, we're to accept the second blow, we're supposed to go the second mile, if forced to go one. You know, if asked for the shirt, uh, coat, you give your shirt. Um, this is not just an ethical rule that you have to apply willy-nilly. It's rather that we are called to live a life of perfect love. And in that life of perfect love and living the way Jesus lived, if it's inconceivable to imagine Jesus killing someone during his life, then it should be inconceivable for us too. And then what that means in terms of how to react in a situation, I don't think um, from this tradition, which is the Anabaptist tradition, you come at it that way. You say, I want to live a life of perfect love, and in that situation, I need to pray to God to show me what does it mean to express the love of Jesus in mm-hmm. this situation. And I will tell you, you know, this is completely uh, unrelated to, to Edward Arnold, but you know, one older Bruderhof sister I knew, um, Ilse von Killer, she was actually a German trapped on an island um, that was being overrun by the Russians at the end of World War II, and she had her baby, um, and she was identified, you know, as the wife of a, a German officer, and they were all lined up to be shot, and she held her baby over her heart because she wanted the baby to die first. Um, but then she looked into the eyes of the commanding officer from the Russians and um, just said, I, I tried to look at him in love, and uh, he called it off. Um, so I think there is often a false narrowness um, and the sets of alternatives we imagine in situations of violence um, that Jesus shows a different way. And uh, we kind of have to have the courage to be as apparently irresponsible and illogical as he was in the path that he went. Because what he did in his life didn't make a lot of sense, um, certainly no political sense and no sense in terms of his own self-defense or defense of his family. Um, yeah, that's a long answer, but it's a big question. It is a big question. I feel like I've definitely not gotten to the end of it. I, we probably won't uh, this <laughs> on this podcast. And I still, and I think I still still do disagree. But I also think that um, sort of looking m- more closely at the way that he was thinking about these things is does kind of illuminate it more. So, like the way that I I kind of started to think about it is that he's really saying and this I agree with is that we are we're supposed to be living in the culture and customs of the kingdom of God like we're already we are living in that kingdom we're physically inhabiting other kingdoms but um like we we are raised into in a different kind of family culture and the family culture of this family of God is one that where we don't use aggressive force against each other um, I mean, I think that like you can make some very finely 
find distinctions about like what it means to use violence. But I also think that that's probably getting into, uh, you know, I think that's important because the objection you'll sometimes hear is, and this is the classic one, right? Um, Luther goes into this, you know, a father will discipline his child, um, at least did back then, right? You'd, you'd s- s- spank your child to mm-hmm. teach them um, not to do bad things. And in the same sense, the state disciplines us. Um, but the Anabaptists, and, and frankly, you know, this is goes back to the early Christians because they were not really into violence too much either, um, pointed out, you know, a child, a father never kills his child mm-hmm. to discipline the child. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of... Uh, you know, what, what is love? Um, and, and if the father's love, the mother's love is modeling God's love for us, well, that tells us a few things about where lethal violence comes in. And there's a difference between coercion um, and pressure and discipline and actually uh, turning a, a living person into a dead one. Yeah, and that actually seems to me, I can, I can more easily... I mean, the, the Romans 13 question probably still would incline me not to be a complete pacifist, you know, but I can more easily see the the distinction being actually killing. And so if you can stop someone from, like, someone who's trying to kill your kid, uh, if you can, like, coerce them physically, like, would would physical coercion to to stop someone from attacking someone be okay, according to your understanding? Yeah, so I, I think even the way of framing it, is it okay, is is the wrong one, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to stick to my guns and say we're called to a way of perfect <laughs> love, and if my way of trying to express perfect love to someone is to, you know, physically prevent them from doing something bad, I absolutely will, just as I would grab okay. the steering wheel away from my daughter if she's... Uh, driving funny, you know, when I'm teaching her, right? Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, you don't, it's not good for someone to become a murderer. And no, so no, no, no. If, yeah. But, so, uh, but like, then the other piece of this, and, you know, there is actually a long literature on what it looks like when nonviolence is practiced. For instance, um, the Anabaptist churches in Colombia during the war between the FARC guerrillas and the government there um, have typically been nonviolent. Some of the Anabaptist churches in Nigeria being attacked by Boko Haram have kept nonviolence. You know, it's often assumed that using violence is the practical and realistic mm-hmm. way of addressing a situation mm-hmm. of danger. Ironically, though, violence is often the worst way to uh, respond when somebody is attacking mm-hmm. you. Um, if, if what you care about is saving yourself and your family, um, nonviolence can be a far more effective uh, way. And maybe not incidentally, actually requires more courage. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is, this is the other sort of, this kind of gets into maybe a few more of uh, Arnold's theses here. Um, that martyrdom or like suffering violence, like suffering um, harm to your body as a way of potentially protecting others or as a way of um, refusing to compromise on um on the principle of of nonviolence is itself something that requires great physical courage. Like there's not, there's, it is not a question of, it's not a wimpier, um, it's, it's not a wimpier option. And like, I've thought of Jesus as like, I, I've sort of been reflecting <laughs> on the idea of the cross as a battle and the cross as the battle 
the definitive battle where Jesus, like as a, a commander, puts his body in between us and the danger that we face and um, and takes all that violence into himself. And that like that obviously took the greatest courage that anyone's ever exhibited and the greatest physical courage that anyone's ever exhibited. N.T. Wright, uh, in his book, uh, The Victory of the Son of God, has a beautiful passage on particularly the, the Gospel of John's account of Jesus' crucifixion and of the cross as Jesus' kind of enthronement um, and goes into it really deeply uh, that it, it is a place of victory. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah. know, it's not incidental that the early Christians, starting with Paul, of course, in, in, in Ephesians, but then also Ignatius of Antioch and others, constantly use military metaphors, but they weren't really metaphors to them. Military metaphors for what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're put, uh, you know, of course, meant to put on the armor of God, but there's mm-hmm. just uh, early Christians writing are, are just strewn with this kind of military idea that you're joining up with this army, that you're joining mm-hmm. a soldier's life, but the war you're fighting is against spiritual enemies, not physical ones, and mm-hmm. you're going to use the weapons of the spirit, not the weapons of, uh, you know, sword and spear that, that shed blood. And uh, it's, it's really interesting, and that's often lost, maybe, I think, in a lot of, you know, modern discussions of nonviolence, which tend to be very... Um, Irenic and, and, you know, pacifistic and, you know, oh, no, no, we don't want to, yeah. you know, we don't want to stir the pot too much. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as I mentioned before, I'm reading um, Kristen Cobb Dumais, Jesus and John Wayne, and she, there's this kind of odd section where she talks about, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, people who are sort of more militaristic in their language about Christianity, yeah, they can draw on some of the more militaristic language in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. But then there's also like options to draw on like more gentle language about Jesus. And she seems to be saying, um, why not just choose to draw on the more gentle language? But like the way that you put it, Pete, it almost seems to me as though, well, first of all, that's not the way that we approach scripture. Like we don't approach scripture choosing the the bits that feel good to us. And second of all, there is a kind of pacifism that doesn't even like the, what it is that the military language is getting at. It doesn't like that fighting spirit. And that seems to me to be a lot ickier in a way than Well, I think it's a huge problem. And and there is a, there is a strain of Christian pacifism that is just really embarrassed by King David and Joshua, right? Yeah. And um, Jesus wasn't. Mm-hmm. And the early church wasn't, and yeah. so if we are, I think we're kind of, you know, uh, missing the point. Yeah. You know, um, along this, how do you like the um, the way he kind of takes uh, Leo Tolstoy to the woodshed? <laughs> Can you describe that? That is pretty brutal. <laughs> well, um, I think I'm just going to read it. Um, one example of false translation of God's language, and he's talking about um, exactly what you were mentioning about a sort of mm-hmm. false forms of pacifism, is the ineffectual and passive pacifism of the sort advocated by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, <laughs> so-, so he says, uh, Tolstoy rightly starts with the Sermon on the Mount, but he understands these words that the words of turning the other cheek and going the second mile as meekly submitting without clearing up the facts and without protesting against evil. Uh, to him, the good means simply yielding to an evil fate without exercising the freedom of will. 
Thus, he in fact advocates the otherworldly, resigned piety of the established church that elsewhere Tolstoy so sharply condemns. The attitude he demands is in effect utmost passivity, a kind of Buddhism. And, uh, that is probably a bad word to him. Although he speaks a lot about Jesus, we have to regard Tolstoy as a sort of sectarian monk. That was just so brutal. Yeah. Can uh, I read the second bit? Well, and then it says, read... by contrast. Yeah. Uh, Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount have an active meaning, a positive content. He says, I am a king, and you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the throne of God. You will have to recognize my rule, you who now commit the outrage of killing me. And he's putting words, uh, paraphrasing Jesus's attitude as he's being killed. Um, yeah. And contrasting that to the kind of passive, you know, I, I wouldn't kill a fly um, yeah. attitude that he associates with Tolstoy. I mean, he is very aware of Jesus as the one in the book of Revelation who comes with a sword and, you know, sticking out of his mouth. And, and I mean, that's the other kind of thing to really grasp hold of here, that he is, Arnold is not in any way iffy about the physical resurrection of the dead. Like, there is, this is not a giving up or submitting to death. This is a grasping hold of life. Um in the in the fullest sense this is not a passive like being okay with evil this is actually the way of fighting for the good and fighting to win not just you know th there's no kind of like um th there's th this is this is doing what jesus did um going to the cross for the sake of the joy set before him not as a kind of like kantian self-abnegating um almost self-hatred. It's almost the opposite of that. Right. And I think, you know, this is what we were getting at before. And uh, when we we're talking about our disagreement, Susanna, is mm -hmm. for him, nonviolence is not the standalone Kantian principle that you apply in hypothetical ethical situations. Mm -hmm. It's just part of this whole new way of life. But that's not separated to the issue of nonviolence. That mm -hmm. also includes sharing all position, possessions. So whenever he talks about violence and uh, nonviolence, he's also talking about capitalism, about mammonism, about um, what it means to live a life without possessions and without worry about being like the birds of the air. Um, there's a reason why he felt drawn to um, voluntary community of goods. Um, he's talking about absolute forgiveness, right? These are all different facets of the same thing. They're not standalone ethical principles that we apply against ourselves or against each other. Mm -hmm. Which then leads me to the other point is he's not using nonviolence as some type of new um, rule of orthodoxy where either you're nonviolent and you're a good Christian or you're violent and you're a bad Christian, right? Um, none of these things are a kind of you're in, you're out rule. Um, they literally are not a dogma. Dogmas mm -hmm. have their place, but these are not dogmas. They mm -hmm. are a way of life. And nonviolence is one expression of it. The fact mm -hmm. that we put our faith in the spiritual battle rather than the physical battle shows our faith in the resurrection of the dead and ultimately that the kingdom will come. Because if we, do, we can't, don't have the courage of our convictions when it comes to the guy, you know, coming with a gun, what makes us think we're going to have the courage of our convictions when we're facing our own end? Will we really believe that the kingdom, the coming kingdom, is the reality that matters and that will also matter physically? Yeah. Um, and so... That's where, you know, I think, and, and we're not going to resolve this now. <laughs> we probably never will. But I think that it's 
ironically, the sort of Niburian realist, you know, um, it's nice what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but we can't really do it when the bad guys come. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the one that is less less hopeful and yeah. um, less and active, less realistic because and less realistic because about what yeah. the world really is if it's true that yeah. Jesus is who he says he is. Um, so yeah. end of my rant. <laughs> It was a good rant. It, you you got that rant on real good. Yeah, I'm not sure. Would Kristen DeMay approve of my rant? No. Oh. No, I think that was toxic masculinity. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'll become yeah, more th- Tolstoyan. I mean, Maybe I'll even become a vegetarian soon. Please don't. We're going to take a break now, and then we'll be back in a few minutes to talk about Portland and Antifa and the Pride Boys and to speak with the author of a new article in Plow called uh, Behind the Black Umbrellas, Patrick Tomasi. So this is the part of the podcast where we uh, give a little sort of um, report from the field, so to speak. Um, Pete and I are both kind of in different parts of the Plow world. Pete is living in Fox Hill, upstate New York. I am living in Queens, downstate New York. And my kind of role for the past couple of years has been to be the, um, I don't know, intermediary, uh, weird sort of f- social... I think ambassador is the word we use Ambassador. <laughs> I've, I've been the ambassador to uh, lots of people. And um, one of the things that I'm really excited to uh, talk about from the broader plow community in New York is the fact that um, friend of the pod and... Uh, former pl- or plow writer Tara Burton let me know recently that KGB Bar, um, which is the bar that we have done um, some of our uh, episode or some of our issue launches in, has reopened. It survived COVID. It's reopened. Lori Schwartz, the manager of that bar, has been a great friend to Plow and has just been really um, wonderfully welcoming and has been a great hostess. And I'm so extremely <laughs> pleased of all the places that I really did not want to go out of business because of all the restrictions on dining, KGB Bar was right at the top of the list and they've made it through. So that join us. That is great news. Yeah, I'm really happy about that. So join us in the aftertime when we are able to do our launches there again. As soon as I have my vaccine, I'm going there. Uh, awesome. <laughs> so up here in, in upstate, what we are doing to kind of do a bit of community in COVID and this really depressing time is, is maple sapping. So the great thing about maple sapping, actually making maple syrup, is first you get out into the woods and you have a reason to be slogging around through the disgusting snow, um, hauling around buckets of maple sap. But then you get to sit around a fire and um, it's not quite as good as KGB's drinks, but you can come up <laughs> with some pretty good things around a maple sapping fire. And so um, our family... Uh, together with some of my our neighboring families, just got our buckets up. Uh, we actually hung uh, 80 buckets on maple trees. And uh, so we're aiming to uh, have a great season. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you posted, Susanna. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get Lori at KGB Bar to actually make a maple sap-based cocktail. She would totally do it. We should pitch this to her. She would absolutely be into it. I'm told it's a thing in Korean saunas. There you go. Well, we better get on to our next topic. Well, we'll now start uh, the second part of our podcast, and I'm really glad to be welcoming 
our contributor, uh, Patrick Tomasi from Portland, Oregon, on with us. Great to have you, uh, Patrick. And we're going to be talking about his article, uh, Behind the Black Umbrellas, Debating Violence with Portland's Antifa. Uh, it's one of my favorite articles in this issue, and it kind of ties in really neatly with the question of violence. Can violence ever be good? And uh, maybe first, Patrick, you've, you've lived in, in Portland a long time. Could you just describe what led up to this article? Because this wasn't just like a one-time you know, think piece, but you've been sort of reporting this story uh, the entire year with all the craziness that we've uh, read about coming out of your, your home city. I didn't become aware of Antifa's existence um, until around the previous, um, the previous election in 2016, when there was a lot, of, um, a lot of back and forth around, well, I mean, Portland was legitimately, there was, it was fairly dangerous to be here, um, it, be in downtown Portland right after that election. Um, and there was, so Antifa kind of in Portland started to be really well known, but I, it was just sort of this, this background thing. Oh, there's this thing called Antifa, they wear black. Um, they're anarchists, and that was that was more or less all I really knew about them. They they interacted with Andy No, who's sort of famous uh, conservative um, uh, commentator, provocateur, or something. Anyway, that was about all I knew about them. And they uh, then around after the murder of George Floyd, it became. Um, common to, to see Antifa activists with uh, Black Lives Matter and other groups in, at the same events and stuff. And so that, um, that just led to, for me, just try, a lot of just sort of trying to understand what is actually going on. You know, people, it was later in the year in November, maybe that, um, that they were, you know, that Portland was called like an anarchist jurisdiction. But being here, um, it was still something that, that like, it was very, very unclear what was actually happening. Um, and, you know, I would, um, I read like, you know, New York Times, NPR, whatever. Um, so a lot of my relatives uh, like watch Fox News and um, read, you know, what is it, Newsmax or Newsweek, whichever one is the, the conservative one. Um, you know, and so we would be just, not just like not on the same page, but like, I, I mean, I used the phrase in the article that it was like being in alternate universes with the same timeline. We're like, okay, we have an election coming up that happens in both universes. And then like, there are protests in Portland that's happening in both universes. But like, what is actually the events, the events that actually go along with this are completely um, different. And so I just, I couldn't, I couldn't piece out what was actually happening. I would try to read the, um, the local press, the Oregonian, um, and uh, OPB or Oregon Public Broadcasting and stuff like that to get a better sense, but I it was just still very hard to figure out um, what was happening. So had a family argument in, or a family discussion. My mom keeps saying, it, was, it wasn't an argument, it was just a discussion. Uh, but we were discussing um, whether or not, like whether or not it was unsafe to go downtown, whether the city was actually on fire. That was the, the phrase that people kept saying, Portland is on fire. Um, and I hadn't actually been downtown and I realized that that might be a problem if I was trying to figure out what was happening, that I wasn't, I had no direct experience of it at all. Um, so I, the, I started, I started going to the protests after that. And then, um, 
shortly thereafter, the protests actually moved, uh, the, the center of it moved from downtown to the neighborhood that I live in because the Portland Police Union building is in my neighborhood. Um, and so that- Convenient? Yeah, very, very convenient. Because <laughs> um, I could actually walk to protests and then walk home and not have to worry about if roads would be blocked um, and I wouldn't be able to drive, uh, which happened numerous times. Um, and so, so then I, I started going uh, to those as well. And, um, but I, I didn't have necessarily even the, the sense that I was gonna write about it. I just kind of wanted to understand what was happening. Um, but then I think, I actually don't remember how the, the piece for Breaking Ground came. I think maybe <laughs> I emailed Susanna and said, hey, I've been seeing this stuff, do you want a piece? Or, I, don't remember. I forget what the sequence was, but when you um, mentioned the possibility of doing this piece for, Breaking Ground, which is a sort of plow-affiliated um, um, website that I edit with Ann Snyder, um, I jumped on the idea. So I sent you down there, and I was a little bit worried about your safety. And I remember, like, doing a bunch of kind of, like, re research to try and figure out how to, like, have you not get, I don't know, milkshaked or something. Right. Yeah, concrete milkshake would not have been, would not have been a great experience, I don't think. No. But, it, yeah, I think I think as far as, like, what, who is doing violence, right? I think, I mean, I'm also, in addition to writing, I'm also the Dean of Boys at the school where I teach. And, and you know, you see this happen with, with kids where, right, if you have a couple, of, um, a couple of bad attitudes that can have a huge effect on the, the dynamic of an entire group and have an effect on, can affect the attitudes of kids whose, whose attitude would otherwise be good. And I think when you have uh, people who are, have varying degrees of comfort with violence, at the same protest, people who might not be comfortable with violence start to become comfortable with it as they as it becomes part of what's happening there. Um, so I think, you know, I had I, there was one interview I did that it did, didn't make it into the article that uh, was with the an organizer with the Democratic Socialists in Portland, um, and I asked him, you know, what what he thought about all of this, and and it was sort of like, well, you know, Antifa. I don't have a problem with violence on, uh, in principle. I have a problem with uh, with how we're perceived, right? So even like the DSA, which doesn't necessarily, I mean, they're, they're not known for going around breaking windows. Mm -hmm. um, they're, you know, they're, they're saying like, well, actually like, violence as a political tool is fine, or we think it's fine, but we wanna make sure that we're using that tool well. Yeah. What, what I've found amazing about the article uh, is the way that, it actually modeled a different way of approaching this problem because you talk to so many different kinds of people. So you talk to a lot of people involved in Antifa. You talk to people who are sympathetic uh, to the BLM protests. You also talk to, you know, proud boys, at least a few of them who would talk to you, right? Was it difficult to get into those conversations with all those different kinds of actors in this pretty charged situation? I think... In a certain respect, it was easier than I thought it would be. So for partic particularly talking to uh, Rose City Antifa, I did not have any idea starting out how, that, how I was going to do that. Um, and I went to their website and found out there was an email address and I emailed them and they got back to me like the same day or the next day, you know? So some of those things. The organized anarchists. <laughs> organized anarchists. Yeah. So those sorts of things, you know, just reaching people was much easier than I thought it would be. And the fact that like, I had no idea how to contact Proud Boys, but then they had a protest, again, almost in my neighborhood or a rally. How you talk with, about violence 
with people who are comfortable with violence is a very tricky question because for example, like, I mean, I would use the word violence to describe throwing a Molotov cocktail into the Portland Police Union building. To me, that's violent. Antifa would explicitly say that is not violence. It's just property damage and they'll get out in time. Right, exactly. They've got insurance. But then when they, when they want to talk about the violence of the state, right, then that, then that t- entirely shifts. And we're saying, oh, well, you know, the, the homelessness in Portland is violent in the sense that, like, there are people living on the street while other people ma- amass wealth. But homelessness is not caused by going around and hitting people with baseball bats, right? It has to do with jobs. It has to do with housing. So, so somehow discriminatory housing practices are violent, but breaking windows or attacking buildings, which also affects people's lives down the road, um, is not. You conclude your piece, and, and we don't want to keep you away from your duties at the school too long, Patrick. Um, you conclude your piece, though, with, with a very different element, with um, an extended interview with Daryl Davis, uh, which I found absolutely fascinating. Antifa, um, many of them told you, you know, they, they kind of saw their job as punching na- Nazis. Um, if more people had punched Nazis in, back in the 1930s, they, they, they feel, um, you know, Hitler might have been stopped in his tracks. Um, but you sp- spoke with a man who believes that doesn't work and has actually, you know, got some successes to prove it. Right. I think that Daryl Davis is the kind of person um, that we can look to. Not to say that everyone is going to go start befriending neo-Nazis and Klansmen, Klansmen. Um, but that he models the fact that people can change. He models the fact that, uh, that dialogue is possible. I love that quote from him. You can't punch the Nazi out of a Nazi. You can't punch the Nazi out of a Nazi. Yeah. And he's somebody who knows Nazis. So. <laughs> well, that concludes uh, the second part of our podcast. And before we sign out, we will, as usual, give our recommendations. So I want to talk about an article that has kind of been in my head recently. It appeared in the Boston Review uh, by Joseph Margulies, a professor at Cornell, and it's called Who Deserves Forgiveness? And I won't get into it here, but it touches on a lot of things we've been talking about. He writes about the New York Times who profiled an uh, uh, Olympic swimmer and who participated in the Capitol riot on January 6th and is now essentially asking for forgiveness. And they gave him you know, a very sympathetic review The point of the article, though, is to say, actually, everyone deserves a chance at forgiveness, and we need to expand the range of people uh, to whom we're prepared to offer forgiveness from just uh, famous Olympic athletes with a lot of good friends, but of course, they should be forgiven too. So check it out, Joseph Margulies, Who Deserves Forgiveness? And mine is actually something that I just rewatched on Valentine's Day, Uh, the Hitchcock romantic comedy um, with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly to catch a thief. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years and um, it was, it held up absolutely. So if you haven't seen it in a while or if you've never seen it, it's probably time to watch To Catch a Thief again. That concludes our podcast for today. Please sign in for our next episode, uh, which will be next week. Uh, that'll be the third of this six part series on violence and nonviolence, the violence of love. See you then. Woo!